welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today we're going to be reading part two of Alexandra Kollontai's 1926, The Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman. I'm just going to dive right in because this is a, a longer, it's actually a, a memoir, obviously, and I'm going to try to read most of it over the next couple of episodes. And the part that I'm going to be reading today is really her reflections on her childhood and on you know, her young adulthood, which were very formative, as we will see. Um, it's very important, of course, to remember that she was the daughter of uh, an aristocrat. And she came from a very high class of people in Russia. And so it's really interesting to think about the ways that she broke free of her class and joined the workers' struggle when she did. This is the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman, Alexandra Kolontai, writing in 1926. This is part two. It is essential that I relate some details here about my private life. My childhood was a very happy one, judging by outward circumstances. My parents belonged to the old Russian nobility. I was the only child born of my mother's second marriage. Mother was separated and I was born outside the second marriage and then adopted. I was the youngest, the most spoiled, and the most coddled member of the family. This perhaps was the root cause of the protest against everything around me that very early burgeoned within me. Too much was done for me in order to make me happy. I had no freedom of maneuver either in the children's games I played or in the desires that I wanted to express. At the same time, I wanted to be free. I wanted to express desires on my own, to shape my own little life. My parents were well-to-do. There was no luxury in the house, but I did not know the meaning of privation. Yet I saw how other children were forced to give up things, and I was particularly and painfully shocked by the little peasant children who were my playmates. We lived almost always in the countryside, on the estate of my grandfather, who was a Finn. Already as a small child, I criticized the injustice of adults, and I experienced as a blatant contradiction the fact that everything was offered to me, whereas so much was denied to other children. My criticism sharpened as the years went by, and the feeling of revolt against the many proofs of love around me grew apace. Already early in life, I had eyes for the social injustices prevailing in Russia. I was never sent to school because my parents lived in a constant state of anxiety over my health, and they could not endure the thought that I, like all the other children, should spend two hours daily far from home. My mother probably also had a certain horror of the liberal influences which I might come into contact with at the high school. Mother, of course, considered that I was already sufficiently critically inclined. Thus, I received my education at home under the direction of a proficient, clever tutoress who was connected with Russian revolutionary circles. I owe very much to her, Mademoiselle Maria Strakova. I took the examinations qualifying me for admission to the university when I was barely 16 in 1888, and thereafter I was expected to lead the life of a young society woman. 
Although my education had been unusual and caused me much harm, for years I was extremely shy and utterly inept in the practical matters of life, it must nevertheless be said that my parents were by no means reactionaries. On the contrary, they were even rather progressive for their time. But they held fast to traditions where it concerned the child, the young person under their roof. My first bitter struggle against these traditions revolved around the idea of marriage. I was supposed to make a good match, and my mother was bent upon marrying me off at an early age. My oldest sister, at the age of 19, had contracted marriage with a highly placed gentleman who was nearly 70. I revolted against this marriage of convenience, this marriage for money, and wanted to marry only for love, out of a great passion. Still very young and against my parents' wishes, I chose my cousin, an impecunious young engineer whose name, Kolontai, I still bear today. My maiden name was Demontovich. The happiness of my marriage lasted hardly three years. I gave birth to a son. Although I personally raised my child with great care, motherhood was never the kernel of my existence. A child had not been able to draw the bonds of my marriage tighter. I still loved my husband, but the happy life of a housewife and spouse for me became a cage. More and more, my sympathies, my interests turned to the revolutionary working class of Russia. I read voraciously. I zealously studied all social questions, attended lectures, and worked in semi-legal societies for the enlightenment of the people. These were the years of the flowering of Marxism in Russia, 1893 to 1896. Lenin, at the time, was only a novice in the literary and revolutionary arena. George Plekhanov was the leading mind of the time. I stood close to the materialist conception of history, since in early womanhood I had inclined towards the realistic school. A visit to the big and famous Krengolm textile factory, which employed 12,000 workers of both sexes, decided my fate. I could not lead a happy, peaceful life when the working population was so terribly enslaved. I simply had to join this movement. At the time, this led to differences with my husband, who felt that my inclinations constituted an act of personal defiance directed against him. I left husband and child and journeyed to Zurich in order to study political economy under Professor Heinrich Herkner. Therewith began my conscious life on behalf of the revolutionary goals of the working class movement. When I came back to St. Petersburg, now Leningrad, in 1899, I joined the illegal Russian Social Democratic Party. I worked as a writer and propagandist. The fate of Finland, whose independence and relative freedom were being threatened by the reactionary policy of the Tsarist regime, at the end of the 1890s, exercised a wholly special power of attraction upon me. Perhaps my particular gravitation towards Finland resulted from the impressions I received on my grandfather's estate during my childhood. I actively espoused the cause of Finland's national liberation. 
Thus, my first extensive scientific work in political economy was a comprehensive investigation of the living and working conditions of the Finnish proletariat in relation to industry. The book appeared in 1903 in St. Petersburg. My parents had just died, my husband and I had been living separately for a long time, and my only son remained in my care. Now I had the opportunity to devote myself completely to my aims, to the Russian revolutionary movement and to the working class movement of the whole world. Love, marriage, family, all were secondary, transient matters. They were there. They intertwine with my life over and over again. But as great as was my love for my husband, immediately it transgressed a certain limit in relation to my feminine proneness to make sacrifice and rebellion flared in me anew. I had to go away. I had to break with the man of my choice. Otherwise, this was a subconscious feeling in me, I would have exposed myself to the danger of losing my selfhood. It must also be said that not a single one of the men who were close to me has ever had a direction-giving influence on my inclinations, strivings, or my worldview. On the contrary, most of the time, I was the guiding spirit. I acquired my view of life, my political line from life itself, and in uninterrupted study from books. Okay, so that was the second part of the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman. And I think here Colin Tai is just giving us really the necessary background information that we need about her life. The fact that she was schooled at home. That's where she learned all the languages that she knew, including English, because she actually had a British nanny, a British governess who taught her English when she was a child. And she was very coddled by her parents. And she was horrified that her 19-year-old sister would marry this 69-year-old man because it was a good match. It was considered, you know, a appropriate match because the man was wealthy. And Kolontai rebelled against her parents at a very young age and married this poor cousin of hers who she only stayed married to for three years, although she did have one son. And I think that she is, for this period of time in the late 19th century, an incredibly progressive woman. I mean, this is really unheard of, a young woman of the nobility, an aristocrat, basically leaving her husband and her child and going off to Switzerland to study political economy with this professor. Now, she goes to Switzerland because at the time, there are no universities for women in Russia. And so there were many women of the nobility and of the upper classes and the high bourgeoisie who were going to study abroad because they could study in Switzerland. So Kalantai wasn't so unique in this respect. But what is unique about her education is that she becomes quite radicalized in Switzerland. And I think the other thing that's really important about this section is that Look, it's very clear that she has these men in her life. Uh, she has her husband, Kolontai, when she's quite young. She later has men who become quite prominent Bolsheviks in the party. But here she really wants you to know, she wants the reader to know that she was not led to revolutionary politics by a man. By, or by any man or any combination of men, that her revolutionary spirit really comes from her own experiences as a child, from living on this estate in Finland and seeing how the peasant children are treated, from books. She talks a lot about reading and reading the works of Marx and especially Bebel's Woman in Socialism and 
Engels is the origin of the family, private property, and the state. There are these really key texts about women's emancipation that are floating around Europe at the time. And, you know, Kollontai is really a bit of an autodidact. She self-radicalizes. Now, of course, she's also working very closely with other radicals. She's working in the underground movement. She is teaching workers. So she has a lot of contact with working people in St. Petersburg, even though she comes from this aristocratic background. And I think it's really important. I think she really wants us to know, and I think it's important going forward as we read this, that part of the reason why she calls the memoir the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman is because part of her sexual emancipation is that sex and her personality remain separate throughout her life. So she has these passionate love affairs. If you remember from part one, she talks about how, you know, she's wasted so much time and energy and emotion on relationships. And she wishes that she was like, you know, modern women who don't spend as much time fretting over their men. And that had she not spent so much time and energy and emotion on her relationship, she probably would have gotten more work done. But she wants us to know that even though she's had these passionate relationships, even though she's been deeply in love and she's had her heart broken, none of that affected her commitments to the revolution and her commitments to justice for the working class and for women's emancipation. And I think this is really important that we understand this about Kolontai because one of the things that she wants us to realize is that women are way too preoccupied with romance. That's part of the problem. She thinks that's part of what makes women oppressed within a patriarchal bourgeois society is that because marriage for many women is the only way to make a living for themselves, you know, to have a roof over their head and to have food on the table, they're constantly obsessed with men and with finding the right man and when making themselves and preparing themselves for marriage and making a quote unquote good match like her sister did with this man so many years her senior. And what Kolontai wants to say is look, in this future socialist world, women will be free and they won't have to think about men. And if they do think about men, so they won't have to think about men in order to make ends meet, in order to pay the rent or have food on the table. They might want to think about men because they're in love, because they actually like somebody, they find somebody attractive or intellectually stimulating or emotionally, a good emotional companion, but that women will someday develop personalities independent of men, that they will develop personalities, that they will develop personhoods that are independent of the preparation for marriage in the future, for being somebody's partner. Because she sees that this idea that the only option that women have is to get married, and so they're constantly worried about the match that they're going to make. Their parents are constantly you know, worried about the match that they're going to make. And so that distorts their personality deeply. They don't ever really develop as an independent person, as an independent soul. She uses this word soul quite a bit. And I think that this is really important for Kolontai, which is why early in this autobiography, she is stressing that her ideas and that her opinions are her own. They don't come because of some man that she happened to be having a relationship with. She brought herself to the revolution and she stayed with the revolution of her own free will, not because of any of the men that she had relationships with. All right, so that's it for part two. I will pick up in the next episode with part three. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kollontai. 
Thanks for listening and keep up the good fight.